how does the misunderstanding or inability to communicate experienced by neurodiverse individuals contribute to the occurrence of violence against them? Um, so when people talk about um, communication and violence, I really think about police violence. Um, often people are targeted for police violence when they're not responding to commands um, in the way that police expect, um, or when police believe that they may be intoxicated because of um, ways that people like autistic people behave. Um, so if someone can't communicate clearly um, to the police, their situation um, and and the police are making these assumptions about them and then assuming that they should be acting violently because of that, then that person can be the victim of police violence. Are there any examples that you have um, about this? Um, yeah, there are many. Um, one is um, a student named Nellie Latson, um, a young man at the time. He's now um, an adult, but he was, I believe, 17 at the time he was arrested, was reading outside a public library wow. um, and someone called the cops on him for that. Um, and he was very frightened when the cops showed up, um, and he tried to get away and, um, they, uh, like he got into an altercation with them because of that, where they were trying to restrain him and he was trying to leave. Um, and because of that, he was charged with a felony and actually put in prison for several years, um, before eventually being pardoned by the governor of his state. Do you recommend like any ways to like better train police, like for these instances, because, even though it might seem like common sense, I feel like these examples, you know, they continually happen uh, more and more uh, against, you know, people with like autism or um, so do you kind of recommend like any ways we could like train police better? So I think police should be trained. Um, I think um, everyone who's going to have a job in, in, that involves interacting with the public, especially in stressful situations, should be aware of how disabilities can affect people and affect the way that people act. Um, and uh and can manifest and, and how people communicate. Um, but I also think that in terms of police violence, the solution goes beyond training. Um, and it really looks at taking away the power of the police to do harm. So um, demilitarizing the police, taking away their militarized weapons, um, giving more funding instead of to large police departments, to social services, um, help making sure the police can be held accountable when they perpetrate violence. So part of that is to do with ending qualified immunity, which is a, um, a law that Says basically makes it very difficult to sue police if you're the victim of police violence um, because they have immunity in court. So ending that policy would would be part of police accountability. Got it. Then um, um go ahead, Michael. Oh, so like obviously, I think with training, you you have to like you define these like certain groups and things. You how how do you treat them accordingly? Um, so neurodiversity is a term which has been like recently coined. Um, so like what do you believe is neurodiversity and do you think the idea of neurodiversity or like the word um acts as like a way to like discriminate against these people or is it something that actually benefits them i think the term neurodiversity has been really useful for allowing people with different disabilities to find each other and to be in community with each other um just to define it for those that don't know neurodiversity means it's the idea that there are all different kinds of brains and that this is just a, a normal part of human diversity and not something that we should be scared of or look at as a sad or bad thing um so really turning around the way people perceive mental disability um where people can be very negative about disability and there can be a lot of stigma the idea of neurodiversity is instead to accept the existence of mental disability as a normal part of human life um and i think that that idea has done a lot to create community and to connect people with different disabilities to each other. So neurodiversity is not only about autism, but also about learning disabilities like ADHD, um, about mental health disabilities like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, um, about other kinds of disabilities in the brain. 
kind of then um, we can uh, move on to another kind of thing. I know you have a lot of advocation for uh, against disability filicide. So what factors might contribute to instances of disability filicide where a parent or caregiver takes the life of their disabled child? Okay, so thank you for asking about that. Um, ASAN run, runs an annual event called Day of Mourning, um, which is um, commemorating the lives of people with disabilities who are killed by family members or caregivers. And unfortunately, this is a phenomenon that's more common than pe many people would think, although we don't have good statistics on it because it is a rare uh, crime. Um, it's people with disabilities we know are more likely to be the targets of abuse by family members, and that can escalate to murder. Um, I think there are several factors that contribute. One is the way our society views disability. Um, it really sets people with disabilities up for discrimination and to be the target of violence, including in their own families. Um, this idea that um, people with disabilities are worth less than people without disabilities um, or that um, our disabilities are a burden on others. Um, you know, those messages are internalized, including by our own family members, and that can lead to violence. Um, the other thing is that um, when people with disabilities are abused, the abuse is less likely to be taken seriously. So there was a study um, a couple years ago of a hotline, a state hotline, that found that autistic children were disproportionately likely to be referred to the hotline. So people would call in about autistic children and say, I think this child is being abused. But the state was less likely to investigate a report of abuse if the child was autistic than if the child was not autistic. So um, they ignored a lot of reports of abuse of autistic children. Um, so we know that abuse of disabled people and autistic people in particular is not taken as seriously. Um, and this is a problem for many reasons because abuse should always be stopped and intervened in. But in specifically when we're talking about filicide, um, abuse can often escalate to murder. So the murder is often a preventable escalation of violence. Um, how did you start the Disability Day of Mourning and how has that movement progressed since then? So Disability Day of Mourning started in 2012. Um, and I started it just in my local community. Um, there was a murder in my local community um, where a, a woman um, murdered her autistic son and then killed herself. Um, and the way this was being talked about in the media, I felt was very um, negative towards the the son, the victim of the murder, um, where people were, were kind of almost blaming him for having been murdered by saying that his disability like drove his mother to kill him and that she would ha had done all she could and she was a loving parent. And I just don't think a loving parent kills their own child. Yeah. Um, so I, I really didn't appreciate the way this was being talked about. Um, and I wanted to have an event to commemorate his life. And that led to Day of Mourning, which was observing this broader phenomenon of people with disabilities being killed by family members and caregivers. Um, and that has become an annual event since then. So it started with um, just the one event. Um, and I think uh, later that month, more events were held. Then the next year, more people um, participated in more national disability organizations joined on in support of us. Um, it's grown to the point where we have um, 20 to 40 vigil sites every year, and we have sites in other countries as well. Oh. So um, it's it's a larger event now than it was when we started. And people think about it differently. So when we started, um, it was kind of, believe it or not, it was perceived as kind of a controversial event. Um, some oh, people yeah. felt some people felt that the event had an anti-parent message, mm. um, which I don't agree with because I don't think parents who kill their children are representative of parents as a whole. Yeah. Um, and I think it's okay to point out this pattern of violence and it's important to point it out because this is something that people with disabilities face. And I don't think pointing out um, the violence that people with disabilities disproportionately face is anti-parent. Um, and more people have come around to that way of thinking. It, it's less quote unquote controversial than it was when it began. That's good.
I mean, it. I mean, it should make sense to be honest. It's like common sense, but but um, do you like besides like disability day of mourning, like what are other kinds of ways that people can advocate against like disability filicide? Um, so there are many ways, um, and a lot of it has to do with you know the way you hear violence against people with disabilities being talked about in your own community. Um, so if you hear someone, for example, saying like, oh, I know someone with a disability whose family hits them or locks them in their room, but I think it's okay because their disability is really hard to manage and um, maybe their family has to do that, you know, push back against that, say like, no, that's really concerning. No one deserves to be treated like that. And you should report that person's abuse. Um, making sure um, that people are intervening in cases of abuse is really important when it comes to preventing filicide. Um, and making sure that we change the way we think about violence and disability is really important. A lot of people don't realize it, but many of us have an unconscious bias where we think that people with disabilities are more deserving of violence. And that sounds counterintuitive, but if there wasn't that unconscious bias, people, bias, people with disabilities wouldn't be the targets of violence at a higher rate, and we know that we are. So um, just everyone has to check that bias within themselves and like look at, are there places where this attitude is coming out in my actions? So how can like neurotypical people themselves contribute to um, neurodiversity advocacy and awareness in their own communities? There's many ways. So this, um, a lot of it depends on what the issues are in your local community. Um, and um, I highly suggest getting involved with self-advocacy organizations. So organizations that are led by and run for people with mental disabilities. Um, and these can include people first groups. If you look um, at self-advocates becoming empowered as the national organization, it has many local organizations that are called, often called people first of blank. So like people first of California or people first of Boone County. Um, and these are organizations that are run by and for people with intellectual disabilities. Um, so those organizations may know more about like ways to get involved in your own local community um, in terms of neurodiversity. On a national scale, I recommend that everyone sign up for the organization's newsletter that, uh, that I work for, Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. We have a newsletter that goes out every month and we send out more action alerts when there are action items you can take, like contacting your elected officials about policies that would benefit people with disabilities. So from what we read, we understand that you um, have gone through uh, trying to reform congressional legislation to bring more awareness to like neurodiversity. So can you describe how um, or your like, um, process with that? Sure. So I'm not one of our policy staff, so I'm not one of the main staff that works on legislation for ASAN. Um, but there are several legislative goals that we have. Um, so like pieces of, of legislation that we're trying to get passed. Um, one is we're trying to ban restraint and seclusion in schools. Um, restraint is when someone is held down um, by an authority figure like a teacher, um, and seclusion is when someone is shut in a room by themselves. Um, and both restraint and seclusion uh, often happen in public schools, and they're really dangerous. Um, people have died in seclusion. People have died in restraint. Um, and these um, are banned in some states, but not in others, so we want to see a national ban um, that would make sure that uh, kids aren't being restrained and secluded in schools. And this is difficult because there's some opposition to this from people who feel teachers shouldn't be held accountable if they harm students in this way, um, which I find short-sighted because teachers are more likely to be injured trying to restrain someone than they are using alternatives to restraint. So I feel that teachers should, should support this kind of ban, but often they don't. Um, but that's one legislative goal that we have. Another is to expand access to home and community-based services. 
Um, these are services that are provided through Medicaid that help people with disabilities live in their own communities. So for example, some people may need assistance with things like preparing their food, getting dressed, getting up in the morning, getting to their job. Um, people may need, may need assistance at work. Um, people may need assistance at various times throughout their day. And making sure they have those personal care services is really important to allowing people to live in the community and not in an institution. But many states have very long waiting lists for this kind of service because Medicaid isn't required to provide it to everyone who needs it. So um, the waiting list can be even up to a decade in places like Texas. So um, we really encourage uh, our country to spend more money on these services and expand them, um, as well as increasing the pay of the people who provide these services, because right now the pay is very low. There's a lot of job turnover. Because of that, people leave the, the profession to go into other jobs that pay more money. Um, and it's hard to keep good staff because um, their pay is so low that it, they can't stay in the job for very long. So we want to see an increase in pay of direct support professionals. Um, something else that we're advocating for, this is at the regulatory level, not the legislative. So um, instead of a law that we want passed, a rule that we want the government to make, um, but we want to ban the use of electric shock devices um, for behavior modification on people with disabilities. And this is something that many people don't know about, but there's an institution in Massachusetts called the Judge Rotenberg Center that uses electric shock devices to torture disabled people who live there. Um, and it, it, the way it works is when they do something that the staff at the institution don't want them to do, they shock them. And the shock is very painful. And of course, living with this ability to be electrically shocked at any time, it causes great anxiety. Um, it causes post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the the effects of, of living like this are, are really negative on people. Um, but uh, efforts to ban these devices that, that give the shock so far haven't worked. So um, the government banned them several years ago. The ban was overturned in court. Congress passed a law clarifying that um, the FDA has the right to ban these devices. Now the FDA is um, hopefully going to pass another rule that would ban the devices, but that's something that we're still advocating for. So those are a few examples of, of laws and regulations that we're hoping to get passed. I'm really glad you brought up the home and community services because I know you've been working closely with the Senate with that. I know you tried to... Um kind of like uh, put it put in like an expansion of home and community-based services for the Build Back Better Act. But I know that um, um, that kind of like uh, failed and then instead it was kind of taken out at the last minute. So what was your reaction to that loss? That was really negative. There were a lot of great things in Build Back Better that didn't end up happening in, in the final um, what was passed. Um, so it would have been a really great package. It would have been the largest investment in home and community-based services in the history of our country. And that was something that we really, really needed. So to see that fail was really disheartening. And it's still something that we're advocating for that expansion because we still need to see it. Like the, a lot of people, their ability to live in the community and not in an institution, it depends on getting these services. Got it. And then since then, how has uh, ASAN kind of worked with Congress to help those with uh, autism specifically or any kind of neurotypical? Um... So we have several... Um, Legislative priorities, I mentioned a couple of them. Um, there's also a, an, a bill that we're working on that would create um, centers to study and research and promote the use of alternative and augmentative communication, which is like text-to-speech devices and other kinds of communication assistance for people who don't speak. Um, and that would be really useful because these there aren't currently this kind of centers to study that. And um, it's an understudied area that we need to see more funding for research. So that's a priority. 
We also have priorities for a bill called Autism Cares, which is kind of the a large bill that's reauthorized every five years um, that uh, funds uh, many uh, a lot of autism research, many um, places that do that research, and it creates a committee that oversees the research. And we have priorities for um, making sure that more autistic people are on that committee, making sure that more of the research aligns with our community's priorities, that kind of thing. So these are a few of the things that we're working on. Um, I understand that, um, like you mentioned before, the Seclusion and the Isolation Act, um, where you know there's always this on how teachers should, should like treat neurodiverse people. Um, how do you think like America's culture or like, and and say like, dividing in politics has contributed towards um limiting um, neurodiversity awareness? That's a really interesting question. That's a really broad question. Um, I think that, yeah, we have a divided culture right now. Um, and when you look at how that affects disability and how people talk about disability, it is interesting. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people talk about when Trump was running for president and he uh, imitated um, Serge Kovaleski, who's a a journalist who has a disability and um, it affects the way that he he appears and Trump like held his hands in a way to mock him or to imitate the way his disability makes him appear. Um, and that was a case where um, many people found it really unacceptable, but, you know, to the people that support Trump, it didn't deter them from supporting him. So um, there is a lot of like debate about disability and is disability just something that we should mock and denigrate or are people with disabilities, you know, people with rights who should be respected and is it offensive to, um, to mock people with disabilities for our differences? Um, so yeah, I think unfortunately that is still a cultural question that people are debating rather than a settled like thing that we all believe. Um, what are some strategies that uh, neurotypical individuals can employ to foster better understand uh, better understanding communication with uh, neurodiverse individuals. Um, so I think a lot of this has to do with um, meeting people halfway, right? So when we look at how people with disabilities, um, especially like disabilities that affect socialization, like autism, how we're treated, often people sort of expect us to imitate the neurotypical people around us and um, just act like them and um, change ourselves for the people around us. Um, and neurotypical people are not expected to change anything about the way that they approach socialization in order to interact with neurodiverse people um, or with neurodivergent people. Um, and I feel that since autistic people are having to be so flexible and change so much just to, to socialize with neurotypical people, neurotypical, neurotypical people should also make an effort to understand us and to change the way that they approach communication in order to be able to communicate well with us. Um, and that can just look like letting go of expectations around facial expressions, around eye contact, around body language. You know, you have to understand that when you're talking to an autistic person, and if they have a certain facial expression, it may not mean the same thing that it would mean if a non-autistic person made that same face, um, because we don't use our facial expressions and our body language the same way often. Um, so you may have to ask us, how are you feeling right now? Instead of assuming like, oh, I see that their shoulders are really high. They must be tense. Or like, I see that their posture is this way. They must feel that. Oh, their face looks that way. They must feel that. It may not be that way for us. So you might have to ask. Um, and you have to be patient when we ask you, because we can't read your facial expressions or your body language easily in many cases. Um, so learning to have this kind of relationship that 
is based less on assumptions and more on communication, I think is really important. Got it. Um, then in what ways can neurotypical people amplify the voices and experiences of neurodiverse individuals in advocacy efforts? Because, um, you know, it's one thing to kind of like try to have empathy for others, and but it's kind of impossible to relive their experiences as uh, neurotypical, uh, neurodiverse individuals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that definitely uh, reading the what people with uh, disabilities write and um, learning about our policy priorities, learning from organizations like ASAN or like um, AWN, the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network is another organization that's run by and for autistic people. Um, you know, sharing um, what you learn about neurodiversity on social media, um, making sure that when we're talking about neurodiversity, we're not speaking for people with disabilities because we can speak for ourselves, but we're speaking about disability in a way that reflects the priorities of disabled people. So we talk with um, Olenka Villarreal of the Magical Bridge Foundation, and she has a um, magical playground, which um, is it, used to like, um, provide a space for neurodiverse people. But also serves as like a uh, as like a you know a traditional playground which um like which serves to um like foster a sense of inclusivity because we're not creating a like, she doesn't create a space which is like exclusively for neurodiverse people. Um, has your group Asan um, looked into these type of solutions, um, such as a, a playground or you know a chair or or anything which 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 um is able to um to 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 foster this inclusivity? So we don't do a lot of work around things like playgrounds because um, we're more focused on um, autistic adults than autistic children. Um, but I do definitely support um, efforts to create playgrounds that are more inclusive, um, that where people with all different ranges of abilities can play together. Um, I think that um, ethos of inclusion is really important with the idea that everyone can be together in the space instead of separating us out into different groups. Um, because I feel like Inclusion, this is kind of a tangent, but I feel like if people expect inclusion, if people are raised to expect inclusion, so raised to expect, of course, this playground has people with and without disabilities on it. Like, of course, my class has people with and without disabilities in my class. If people are raised to expect that, they'll expect inclusion later in life. And, you know, they'll say like, okay, um, I'm fine if a, you know, a mixed use housing development is built next to me where people with disabilities are living. Um, I'm fine if there's uh, coworkers with disabilities at my job. I'm fine hiring people with disabilities. I'm fine if my boss has a disability. Like um, people will have a, that attitude towards disability where they expect disabled people to be part of their lives. And I feel like that starts really young. And how do you, um, what, what can like um, parents do to like incorporate like more exposure for their children? Uh, especially if they're neurotypical children with like more neurodiverse people. There are lots of great books that parents can read to their kids about disability. Um, I'm blanking on specifics, but you can find like lists online. Um, a lot of books that were written that come out of the autistic community. Um, I, I encourage books as a place to start because, um, you know, you may have people with disabilities in your life. Um, and I would ask them about how they feel about talking to their, dis talking to kids about their disability before you ask them to do that just because everyone feels differently, right? So for some people, it may be, even if a kid passes them on the street and says, why is that man in a wheelchair? Some people may be totally willing to stop and explain to the kid. And some people may be like, no, I want to go about my day. I don't want to do that. So, um, and so that's tricky for parents because they don't know how to handle it when their kid asks that question. Um, 
but I think the important thing is not to act like disability is a shameful thing or something we should hide or not look at. Like, you know, if the kid says, why is that man in a wheelchair? You can say like, he needs it to get around. And you just don't say like, oh, don't ask that. We don't talk about that. Mm. Um, We don't want to scare kids away from disability or make them think that disability is frightening. Got it. So like on a place like work, like workspaces, um, like you understand that you work with exclusive with adults. So we also know that in you know, certain companies uh, may hire um, neurodiverse people because they provide certain like, but out of the box thinking and benefits from from, from that. So um, what is your stance on that? Um, I think that uh, these neurodiversity hiring programs are a great opportunity for many people. And I feel like there are things that they need in order to be good that many of them have and some of them don't. So um, an advantage they often provide is that they have a better interview process. Excuse me. Um, if you think about a traditional job interview, um, a lot of it has to do with just the social cues in the interview um, and whether the interview and the interviewee click or not is a lot of what makes what determines whether the interviewer will recommend that the interviewee gets the job or not. So it's not about whether you can do the job you're interviewing for. It's about how you make the interviewer feel. It's about that social connection. Um, and that's really tricky for autistic people to establish. So a lot of these neurodiversity hiring programs, they have an interview process that's more interactive and more um, applied. So where they say, um, you know, if you're applying to be a computer programmer, they say, can we see you write a computer program that does this? And you can do it like for them there at, at in the interview. And that is a better way to show your skills than just like, chatting about computer programming with someone and the the point is just to socialize well. Um, so that's one really cool thing about many of these hiring programs. Um, something that we do look for though, is we don't want this to be, like I was talking about earlier, we want inclusion, we don't want segregation. Um, so we wanna see people um, working together with non-disabled employees instead of in their own little space separate from everyone else. And we wanna see um, opportunities for them to advance. So you know, who's running the neurodiversity program? Is it autistic people? Is it non-disabled people? Can autistic people become the boss or are they just always going to be entry level? Um, those are some questions that we have. Then um, we don't really have any more questions, but if there's one thing that we want people to take away from this episode, what would that be? Oh, we've talked about so much stuff. Um, I would say, uh, you know, learn from people with disabilities in your lives and learn that disability is not scary. Um, I'm not saying that it's always wonderful to have a disability. Obviously, there are many challenges and struggles, um, but um, disability is just a natural part of life. It's not something that we need to be scared of or ashamed of. Um, and accepting that disability is part of diversity is part of advocating for better life for people with disabilities. Well, thank you so much, Zoe. Um... Michael, do you have any uh, uh, comments? Um, this question is kind of unrelated, but um, what type of dog do you have? <laughs> oh, thank you for asking. I love my dog so much. Um, she's a rescue, so we're not really sure, but we think she's a rat terrier. Um, for a rat terrier, picture a Jack Russell terrier, but they have pointy ears instead of floppy ears. Oh, it's so cute. She's really cute. My dog has pointy ears, too. She looks like a fox. Oh, it's not just mine. She looks like a fox as well. Yeah, mine, mine's an Akita, so. Oh, adorable. I love Akitas. Um, then, yeah, thanks th- thanks so much, Zoe, for the interview. It was really awesome. Um, uh, talk about, you know, disability inclusion and um, just your work with advocacy in general. No problem. It's been great talking with you. You had awesome questions. Thank you.
All right. Talk to you later then. All right. Thanks so much, Zoe. Bye. Bye. Bye.